You know, we spent the better part of 20 years trying to get the littoral combat ship and the Zumwalt class ships up and running, and they both failed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Security Dilemma, a podcast by the John Quincy Adams Society. I'm Patrick Carver-Fox, joined by my co-host, John Allen Gay, as we have a discussion about a myriad of different weapon systems with Dan Grazier. Dan Grazier is a Senior Defense Policy Fellow at the Project on Government Oversight, or POGO. He's a former Marine Corps captain who's served tours in Iraq, Afghanistan, and the 1st and 2nd Tank Battalion. Today, he analyzes defense procurement and weapon systems, writing extensively about the F-35 program. If you're interested in hearing more about the F-35, you can find an earlier conversation that we had with Dan in your same podcast feed titled A-10 versus F-35, Case Studies in Bad Defense Policy. Today, we talk a little about the F-35, but we explore naval projects like the littoral combat ship, tank warfare in Ukraine and Gaza, next-generation air dominance, procurement cost-saving measures, and the Marine Corps Combined Armed Doctrine. There's so much to cover, so let's jump right into our conversation with Dan Grazier. Dan Grazier, thank you for coming on Security Dilemma. I want to start by talking a little bit about Navy shipbuilding. This is something that you, you've written a bit about. I'm I'm very interested in, in, in what you were saying. Uh, you, you were talking about how the cost of carriers are rising. There's a lack of skilled workers on shipyards, and the Navy has a recent history of failed projects like the littoral combat ship and the Zumwalt class destroyer. You conclude that this means the scope of the U.S. naval force should be adapted. Why is that? Well, the the larger purpose in in that aspect of my work is really just to question the overall strategy that the U.S. Navy is pursuing right now. So the you know the the lack of shipbuilding capacity and, you know, the failed programs kind of feeds into that. Um, but that's not the primary purpose why, why I, I, I do that work. Um, so the, the big threat that's driving pretty much every national security decision now for the last couple of years has been, you know, great power competition versus mostly China. And the scenario that's most often cited is the, you know, Chinese invasion of Taiwan and so my, my work is kind of focused on, on, on looking at the, the strategy that the United States is trying to employ in that, in that scenario, uh, which is basically, you know, imagine that, you know, the Chinese have built this big, massive brick wall and the U.S. strategy is basically to put on a bunch of, uh, you know, bunch of pads like a football player and bash itself into that wall to try to knock it down. Uh, that's, you know, creating a strategy to attack directly into the enemy's greatest strength is, uh, not normally a winning strategy. And, and so my work is, is focused on, all right, let's, let's look at the real threat. Let's look at the, you know, the, the most likely scenarios and how can the United States, what can the United States do to kind of disrupt, thwart the enemy's, you know, the enemy's plans. And so in the case of a, you know, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, um, you know, the, the last thing we, we, we really want to do is get involved in some kind of a larger campaign, you know, ultimately fighting on the ground in China. I mean, that's, that goes against like, just really basic military thinking throughout history, you know, don't get involved in a land war in Asia and, you know, building a fleet and an air force the way we have you know, to create that gap, um, you know, through the, through the Chinese uh, anti-access area denial strat, you know, systems, defensive network. Um, the, the only logical next step in that is landing ground troops. And so that just doesn't make a lot of sense. So if we're trying to preserve Taiwanese autonomy. Uh, how do we how do we thwart that you know that amphibious operation? Well, the best way to do that is at sea and in the air, uh, and try to um, you know maybe not necessarily prevent any Chinese troops from landing on on Taiwan's coast, but to raise the cost of launching that operation in the first place and preventing. Uh, enough Chinese troops on the ground to achieve their overall goal of of toppling the the Taiwanese government and and 
know, reuniting Taiwan with with the rest of with the rest of China. So I recommend, you know, instead of building a, a large surface fleet, which would get absolutely annihilated in that in that scenario, um, you know, I think submarines for you know, 40, 50 years now uh, should really be considered the, the capital ships of the modern fleet. So, um, and there are really good submarines out there. I mean, the, you know, our, our Virginia class submarines are, are outstanding, but, you know, they cost $3 billion a piece. And so, you know, we only have about 60 of them and, and not all of them are going to be, you know, available at any given time and not all of them are going to be in the Pacific uh, when that, you know, if, and, and I, and it's a big if, cause I actually don't think a Chinese invasion of Taiwan is very likely, um, you know, but if that does happen, you know, it's going to be very difficult for the Navy to mass the number of submarines that it would need to be able to uh, sink enough shipping to make the Chinese really reconsider their options. And so I recommend, uh, pursuing lower cost air independent propulsion submarines, which are uh, hugely effective. And, and we could buy probably six of them, uh, if not more, for the cost of one Virginia class uh, attack submarine. No, because numbers do matter. And if you can, you know, if you can create enough problems um, that the, you know, for the Chinese to effectively deal with, then we stand a much better chance of being successful in in thwarting their ambitions. Is the topography of the Taiwan Strait and you know the, the like how, like the depth of the ocean does it indicate that submarines are are a good tool for this? Or do you think we'd have to use a lot of air power in in that kind of deterrent operation of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan? Well, it, it would take a combination of both. the The Taiwan Strait is certainly not as deep as as the open ocean is because Taiwan really kind of sits on, on the continental shelf off the, off the coast of China. Um, but it is deep enough for submarines to operate, operate effectively. Um, and in, you know, in, I think in certain circumstances, um, that some of the submarines would, would operate even more effectively than they would in, in the open ocean. I mean, there's a, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not a sonar expert by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of clutter in, in that, uh, you know, know, shallower water kind of environment that, um, that an effective or that, that a really proficient submarine commander, uh, could deal with and, and could use to his advantage to, uh, to evade detection. So, um, yeah, the, the, Topography of that region is is uh, quite interesting. I actually I'm going to have a lot more on, on this in the in the coming months. Uh, but I was in Taiwan last month, and and I was kind of looking at a lot of these things. Um, and the geography of that scenario, I think, is a lot more complicated than most people think. Um, you know, because we talk about Taiwan all the time, but I don't think. Many people know really what the what the geography of uh, and the topography of Taiwan really looks like, uh, and so I'm going to try to fix that as much as I as much as I can. Um, but uh, you know, it's important to you know to think about all of the geography involved in this scenario. Like a lot of people are just focused on the you know on the Taiwan Strait and and you know the air in between. Uh, mainland China and Taiwan and and usually talking about the beach, but hardly anybody talks about, you know, what what the rest of Taiwan looks like. And it's not a very good place to fight. I would not want to have to do that because you're either, you know, because more than half the island is covered by very tall mountains, um, which is draped in, in uh, very dense forest, uh, jungle, really. Uh, and then the rest of the, the other 40% has to support a population of 23.58 million people now. Most of them live in, in, in cities, like 80% of the Taiwanese population uh, lives in an urban environment. So the cities are really dense uh, and they'd have to be, um, you know, they'd have to be dealt with by the Chinese. But then the rest of the ground is, uh, is taken by agriculture. So it's a lot of rice paddies because you're talking about uh, subtropical um, Asian, uh, you know, Asian terrain. And so it's covered in, in very water intensive agriculture. Uh, so none of that's very conducive to military operations. Um, and so the, the scenario of the Chinese invading Taiwan successfully uh, is a very difficult one to think of. And, 
it's certainly I'd, I'd much rather be the defender in that scenario than than to be the one trying to trying to capture that island. Yeah. Why is Taiwan buying tanks then? Because none of those places you just described are really tank country. Right. Well, you know, it would take a mechanized force, you know, once you, you know, if the Chinese were able to, to establish a beachhead and then to push out from that to try to capture, capture the rest of the island, you know, you would need a lot of armor uh, to be able to move anywhere. But it would be very difficult because it's, um, you know, once you get out of the mountains, the terrain's very, very open and uh, it's very flat. And, you know, because of all the rice paddies, most of those forces are going to be constrained to the roads. And so uh, you would definitely need a lot of anti-armor missiles, um, but you'd also need, uh, you would need some of your own armor uh, to establish, uh, you know, defensive positions and, uh, you know, establish strong points and try to blunt any, any advance um, that might make it through that, uh, you know, there's those long open fields of fire where the Taiwanese or the defenders would be uh, trying to attrit the attacking forces. Related to that, you know, one of our recent episodes, we had Eric Gomez on talking about his uh, quest for the United States to push Taiwan toward a more asymmetric defense strategy and away from some of the, you know, big, nice platforms, uh, you know, amphibious landing ships and some of the other things that they've been uh, been developing recently. Uh, do you share that kind of analysis that Taiwan's military should be pushing uh, toward things like anti-tank missiles, anti-ship missiles, uh, and away from these big platforms? I would, I would say the, the, Taiwanese would probably do very well to have more of a hybrid force. So the, you know, the asymmetric forces, um, you know, to uh, not exactly take on any like big Chinese mechanized force head on, uh, kind of like the way the United States would in a lot of places. Uh, I think it would, it, it would pay dividends because um, there's really only so many places the, the Chinese would be able to attack and it'd be difficult to for the for the Taiwanese to mass their own forces to try to fight a more conventional, you know, more conventional fight. And so having an, you know, an, a, a solid asymmetric capability uh, to be able to, um, you know, try to defeat the Chinese attackers from, you know, in in in. I don't know, almost like an insurgency, uh, you know, type scenario, I think it paid dividends, you know, cause you'd have to, you'd have to think of the whole, the whole enterprise too. Uh, because at, you know, if the Chinese were able to get on the ground, uh, they'd still have these very like fragile, uh, lines of communication either across the, across the ocean or, you know, through the skies between China and Taiwan. And so, the, I think that would be a more effective place for for a more you know more conventional type military operation, uh, you know, attacking those lines of communication and trying to you know really disrupt the you know the the, the Chinese offensive, um, you know, at sea and in the air, and then a uh, more asymmetrical fight on the ground if the Chinese were able to get there in the first place. You were just talking a little bit about some of the comparative cost of types of submarines that the United States can focus on. And, you know, that, that, that just kind of leads me to ask in that sort of grand strategy scope of things, if America is a nation with friends to our north and south, hopefully, um, and, uh, you know, huge oceans to our east and west, why are we, you know, limiting the scope of uh, naval projection capabilities, you know, within that like $3 billion range, which is pretty small if you have a trillion dollar defense budget. Like, how do you think the argument, how do you think uh, about the argument that America should specifically prioritize a large and well-funded Navy where, you know, maybe you build a lot of very expensive aircraft carriers and nuclear powered submarines uh, rather than a large scale investment in other capabilities? That's uh, it, it, that's a good question. Um, you know, because because the United States does exist in a, in a relatively benign, uh, you know, position here with the you know, with protected by the Atlantic and the Pacific and and you know, mostly friendly countries to our north and our south. That does kind of 
by default make the United States a maritime country. And we have been for a long, long time. Um, the, and the United States plays a very important role, and the United States Navy in particular plays a very important role uh, in the world. Uh, you know, the you know, following World War II, when when most of the you know the rest of um, you know the more advanced countries had been had been wrecked, uh, you know, over the over the course of that conflict, in the United States, we were really the um, you know the only major power left. You know, we took on the responsibility of of providing uh, freedom of navigation globally. You know, that was part of the Bretton Woods Agreement. And so it's important for the, for the United States to have a robust naval capability, uh, but you don't need, you know, this, you know, a huge fleet of, of super carriers, uh, you know, to, to do that. What you need is you need a big fleet of, uh, of capable, smaller surface combatants. So the, you know, and the littoral combat ship was supposed to fill a lot of that, um, but you know, it was a it was a flawed concept, and so you know, it didn't work. And the Navy's now you know in the process of rapidly abandoning the the littoral combat ship uh, program. But you know, like a, a you know an an adequate uh, you know frigate program, um, you know that can be purchased in numbers would uh, would serve that purpose. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why I have been very very critical of a lot of the the you know failed programs like the littoral combat ship like the zumwalt class destroyer um you know because it created it created a capabilities gap like we're you know the the navy's you know the fleet shrinking and uh and the other programs that we're pursuing you know the four class aircraft carrier on paper it's like 13 billion dollars a copy um you know the the virginia class submarines you know three billion dollars a copy um, still don't know exactly how much the you know the Columbia class um, you know boats are, are going to be, but you know that they're going to be very expensive, and you know. But there's opportunity costs involved in all of that. There's there's obviously the financial cost of of investing so much money in such a relatively small number of ships, but there was also the opportunity cost of uh, time that was involved with failed programs. You know, we spent the better part of twenty years trying to get the littoral combat ship and the Zumwalt class ships. Uh, up and running, and they both failed. And now the Navy's rushing to complete the Constellation class, uh, but it's still going to be another 10, 10 plus years probably until you have a um, you know even even a small number of of uh, you know fully functional Constellation class uh, frigates. And so it's the better part of like thirty years of, of lost shipbuilding time that the Navy has uh, you know has kind of blundered into, and it's going to take a long, long time uh, you know to to make that up. Um, and, but one of the ways that we could do that is, and, and I will give the, the Navy deserves a lot of credit with the constellation class program. I mean, there's a lot, we don't know about it yet, but the fact that they didn't start like they did with the littoral combat ship and the Zumo class with a clean sheet design, you know, they're, you know, the, the constellation class is based on an existing effective, uh, European frigate model, uh, that's used by, by a number of countries, um, you know, that's, that, that's, a, that's a better starting point. Uh, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. And by not doing that, that will actually save, well, it'll save some time and it will save some money. And I, I would hope that the other services take, uh, you know, take the lesson and apply it properly. Um, that if you're, if you're worried about, if you're worried about costs and you're worried about, um, you know, development problems, starting with a known design and adapting it for our own purposes is probably the better way to go. Do you feel like the uh, U.S. shipbuilding capacity is is adequate for the period that we're going into? I've heard a lot of anxiety about this in Washington that we don't have the you know the shipyard space uh, and time available to really support uh, a a navally led defense strategy. Uh, I am very concerned about that, uh, and it's not just the the shipyard space; it's also the number of skilled workers. That's a an, that's another big problem that we have. Um, you know, if God forbid, let's say we did get in like a worst case scenario, and we start losing ships, like we wouldn't be able to replace them in in any like reasonable meaning you know meaningful time. You know, if you look back to to World War II, 
Obviously, that's a different era. Obviously, it was a different scenario uh, and the technology was different. But, you know, you, you look at how fast the United States was able to crank out ships uh, you know, during that time into repair ships um, and get them back in the fight very quickly. I think the United States would struggle uh, mightily, uh, probably fail to make up any any major combat losses, uh, you know, moving forward. And so, um yeah, I mean, it's you know that that's a that's a reason to do a couple things. It's a reason to uh, to one increase the number of skilled workers, uh, two to expand our shipbuilding uh, you know capability as far as shipyards go, and you know the other thing is uh, simpler ships mean they're simpler to repair, and so um, that's a it's a it's an excellent argument against the excess complexity that we've seen. Uh, you know, with programs like the Zoomwalt and, and the and the Littoral Combat Ship. So we, we were just talking a little bit about known designs, and uh, I, I want to talk about one specific known design, and uh, that, that's that on uh, October 16th, the United States delivered 31 M1A1 Abrams tanks to Ukraine. Uh, and there's been a lot of rhetoric about the value of tanks in that war. Given that you've led tank, batal- like, like tank platoons in combat, uh, I believe with the same or similar tanks to what we just delivered to, to Kiev, um, do you believe that these tanks are specifically valuable to Ukraine? Like, what's your interpretation of the delivery of those tanks and how it might affect uh, Ukrainian combat operations? Well, you're you're right to point out that uh, those tanks are are familiar to me. There's a very reasonable chance that I've operated on at least one of them, uh, because as far as I know, those were the the tanks that were taken from the Marine Corps when Marine Corps decided to roll up, um, you know, roll up the guidons for the tank battalions. Uh, and so the, you know, the, the Abrams tanks, particularly the ones that were modified for the Marine Corps are, they're effective tanks and they were designed specifically for that kind of an environment. Um, you know, the, the Abram, you know, the, the basic Abrams design was, you know, envisioned fighting, fighting the Soviets across, you know, across Northern Europe. And so, you know, they're, they're, you know, pretty well suited for for the current environment in in Ukraine. Uh, you know, at this point in in that conflict, though, since it's it, it looks a whole lot more like World War One than it does anything that uh, you know the the futurists in Washington had envisioned uh, for twenty first century warfare. Um, you know, it, it, it kind of remains to be seen. Uh, you know, what kind of what kind of an overall impact. Um, really kind of two companies worth of worth of American tanks are going to have, you know, on this on this conflict, um, you know, because a lot of it depends on on how the Ukrainians employ them. Um, I mean, Ukrainian army has some has some, you know, some very good people and and some very smart people that I know have the, you know, at least the capability of, of employing them the right way, um, you know, but if they're kind of, you know, sent out piecemeal, um, you know, with like a, a section of tanks, you know, two tanks here and there, uh, you know, spread out across those those lines. I, I don't know exactly how much impact they'd have. Uh, armor is, uh, you know, in in major combat, armor is most effective when it's when it's massed as much as uh, as much as possible, um, and and it's really good for a. Uh, you know, a much more mobile fight than what we're seeing now. You know, now that the the lines have kind of solidified, have been reinforced. You know, it's going to be difficult to get any kind of a force across. You know, across a big minefield, um, and you know, through heavily, you know, heavily defended uh, defended ground. So, yeah, it's it, it it it's interesting. You know that they're there. Uh, they probably could have been put to much better use earlier on in the conflict when. Um, you know, before the lines had solidified, uh, that's when they really would have shown. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see what happens moving forward. I'm curious with the lines being so solid in Ukraine, uh, for so long now, do you feel like the kind of maneuver paradigm for warfare, uh, is still a good lens for Ukraine to use in looking at its own combat prospects and for U.S. military thinkers uh, to, to bring to mind as well? Because it seems like the the room for maneuver and the kind of, you know, defeating your enemy's plan and displacing forces and things like that, that that's just not able to happen in this densely mined 
uh, you know, no air power or no air superiority kind of environment? Well, all right. That's a, that's a really difficult, uh, really difficult question. So uh, I think we have to, we have to start with some, uh, some, some definitions. So, um, you know, maneuver in the sense of, of actually moving around on the battlefield is kind of one thing. Maneuver warfare as a concept is something very different. Uh, so maneuver warfare as a concept, it's really a philosophy. It's how you think about conflict. Uh, it's not about specific movements on the ground. Um, you know, they're, you know, the, the Ukrainians could absolutely uh, figure out, you know, on the conceptual, you know, a conceptual level, uh, how to, how to employ, um, you know, how to outmaneuver the enemy. Um, kind of using the, the finger quotes there, um, you know, in, in, in any number of ways, um, you know, they can go back and you look at what the Germans did uh, in, in World War One. you know, when the, when the Eastern or when the Western front became uh, very static, you know, the, the Germans went back and they completely redeveloped their, um, you know, their warfighting uh, doctrine. They developed stormtroop tactics. Uh, they developed that in World War One, and then and then during the interwar period, they expanded that uh, into you know, the the Blitzkrieg concept uh, that they employed very effectively uh, early on in in World War Two. So, um, you know, as far as the you know, if we're if we're talking about just maneuvering on the ground, uh, trying to um, you know create a breach in the in the the Russian defensive lines. Uh, to get in their rear and and to turn them and make them fight, uh, you know, kind of out in the open outside of their, you know, their trenches. I don't know that the Ukrainians have the means to do that. Uh, you know, there was there's a whole lot of whole lot of anticipation with the the big planned Ukrainian offensive, um, and we don't really hear too much about that anymore because it is largely, uh, you know, it largely fizzled, and so. Um, you know, there might be, there might be other ways, uh, conceptually that the Ukrainians could figure out a way to, um, you know, defeat the, you know, the, the Russians, um, maybe not on the ground, you know, who knows, um, you know, uh, at this point they kind of have to move far beyond the, you know, the physical dimension of war and, and try to figure out a way to defeat the, the Russians on the, on the mental and moral, uh, dimension and the mental and moral dimensions. Um, you know, but, uh, yeah, it's it's it, it's kind of difficult to see you know see a way forward uh, for the Ukrainians to defeat the Russians militarily. It's going to have to happen now and and more of a you know probably happen more now in in a diplomatic realm. There's been a lot of controversy recently uh, about the deployment of IDF tanks into Gaza, uh, seemingly without any infantry support in an urban environment. Um, I was pleased to discover that many people on Twitter are actually tank doctrine experts. I hadn't known that. <laughs> um, but uh, many are now comparing that urban fighting in, in, in Gaza to Fallujah. So I, under, I understand that you served with tank battalions in the Al-Anbar province. What's your perspective from what you've seen about the IDF's use of tanks in the conflict? Right. Well, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to make a disclaimer right off the top. Like I, uh, yes, I did command a tank platoon in Fallujah, but it was in 2007. Uh, I was not there in November of 2004, uh, during uh, you know the the big Phantom Fury battle that most people immediately think about uh, when you start talking about urban warfare, I was there a couple of years after that, so I saw certainly some of the aftermath, and I was trained by people though who uh, who fought in Phantom Fury. I know a lot of them, um, and so uh, the yeah the tank ex- experts on on Twitter. That's kind of a that's kind of a funny thing watching watching some of that. We're, we're, we're talking right now, I mean, this is, or this is November 14th, 2023. So the fight's still going on in, in, in Gaza. And a lot of what we see is what both sides want us to see, uh, rather than, you know, the, the full situation. So I don't want to get too far in front of my skis here because there's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot that we're only going to really know after the, after the guns fall silent. Um, but uh, that being said, the 
while it might look like the uh, the Israelis are operating tanks in an urban environment without infantry support, uh, you know, Merkava tanks not like a uh, not like an Abrams, not like a Challenger or a little Cleric or any other you know modern tank. It's more of a, a mobile bunker, um, you know, than it is a than it is a tank. You know, if you see a picture of the particularly the back of a Merkava, you're going to see a true patch back there. Because they can tuck a fire team of infantrymen in the back of that tank, and so um, uh, if they're needed, the you know they can drop that ramp, and the infantrymen can can come out and provide that that close in infantry support that is often needed in in an urban environment. Like I was, you know, when when we were just patrolling in Fallujah in the summer of two thousand seven. Um, you know, particularly if we had to get off the main road, I did really want to have infantry support, uh, you know, close by because, um, you know, I've got, I had a lot of armor protection, but, you know, if it's a really close in environment, I might not be able to traverse my, my gun all the way, um, you know, at a, at a target, or I might not be able to elevate it enough. Uh, you know, if somebody's up high in a building, um, you know, or, uh, you know, just having an infantryman, you know, go up slightly in front of us at an intersection and peek it around a corner to make sure that there isn't, there isn't a guy with an RPG, uh, waiting for me to, uh, you know, to, to poke out of that corner, uh, before I even have an opportunity to pie off that corner and, and, and target him with any of my weapons. Um, you know, so the, the IDF definitely has that capability with a Merkava, um, and, but again, we're going to have to wait and see after after all this is said and done to really you know to really study uh, the operations in Gaza to see how uh, you know how the IDF really did um, you know conduct this operation to you know, to see. So I guess that's a that's a long way of saying that uh, you know to all the all the you know the armor experts on on Twitter uh, that uh, all is probably not as it seems. Uh, you probably want to learn a little bit more about the the actual capabilities of the Merkava uh, and really to withhold a lot of your fire until this is all said and done uh, so that we can really evaluate what what really happened. Another thing that's been in the news lately is that the Air Force's new bomber, the B-21 Raider, had its first flight. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on this program. Is it looking like a more successful acquisition than we've maybe seen uh, on the air front in a while, or is it looking more like the next uh, big boondoggle? Well, it's it's far far too early to you know to say that um, you know just from a you know like an acquisition technical standpoint that it's a boondoggle. We just don't know enough about it, um, and you know the Air Force is working really hard to make sure that we don't. Um, but we'll, we'll know more information about, about the actual performance of the B-21, uh, you know, in the coming years as it's, you know, now that it, now that it has had its first flight and, and it starts, uh, going through testing, we'll probably start learning more about it and we'll get a better sense in the, you know, the next few years about how, how effective, um, well, let me put it this way about how the B-21 matches up to the promises made about the B-21. Now, that being said, uh, I, I think the, the whole program is, um, well, I just question why. Why are we building a, you know, a, a manned bomber here in, in the second decade of the 21st century? So, uh, you know, bombers, we've, the United States has spent a long time, a lot of time um, and a lot of money devoted to building manned bombers. And, you know, history does not, does not support a big bomber fleet. It just doesn't. And, uh, you know, the, the performance of the bombers and the actual effectiveness, um, on the outcome of the war, even going all the way back to like World War II is, is still highly debated. And, um, and then, you know, in the, in the years since, you know, you, you think about, um, you know, the, the Air Force had a lot of big bombers in Korea. Um, they weren't effective in Korea. Um, there, there was a little bit of effectiveness uh, with some B-52 strikes late in Vietnam. But, 
you know, even that is is still kind of debatable. And then since then, um, haven't really heard a whole lot about you know a whole lot about them. Like most of you know most of the uh, the airstrikes that have been done since Vietnam have been done by you know you know smaller you know fighter bombers basically. And so um, you know the B twenty one it's it, it's a great vanity project for the Air Force because that's kind of their their you know, how they conceive themselves, you know, flying big, expensive bombers deep in enemy territory, uh, you know, dropping munitions on the, on the enemy's capital. I don't think that serves a, you know, a, a very useful purpose, you know, uh, you know, whenever you, whenever you drop a bomb or you fire a missile or anything, um, you know, at, at, a, you know, at, at any target, what you're talking about is just fires. It's, you know, you want to talk about basic, basic doctrine. Let's just talk about, you know, the fundamentals, uh, drop a bomb, you fire an artillery shell, it's just fires. And fires is, uh, you know, it, it, it's important, but it's important in, in the right context. You know, when, when the army employs artillery, the destruction that's caused when you fire that artillery, um, you know, serves, serves some purpose, but the real value in fires is the disruption to the enemy's, uh, to, to the enemy's operations. But that disruption only has value if it could be exploited on the ground. So firing, you know, firing missiles or dropping bombs at, at really distant targets, um, you know, in certain circumstances, you know, there's, there's some utility, but in a, in a much larger sense, a lot of it's just kind of wasted effort because, you know, you, you, you drop a bomb and then you fly off and there isn't anything to exploit. There aren't any ground forces to exploit that disruption. The enemy is just going to clean up and and rebuild itself. And sometimes it'll the the enemy will actually get uh, get stronger. So instead of concentrating uh, their forces in a place that might be you know relatively easy to capture, you know they start dispersing forces. You know the Russians did this uh, in Ukraine. You know they had a bunch of big fuel dumps early on. You know a bunch of supply dumps early on in the war. And then once those got targeted, then they started spreading things out. So they actually strengthened their system. Uh, as a result of of those kind of strikes, so um, so that's a big reason why I don't like the B twenty one. Plus, like at at this point in you know the development of military technology, do we really need to build a you know a bomber that you know we don't even know how much the B twenty one is going to going to cost ultimately? You know, it's it's north of six hundred million dollars a copy. Um, it's probably going to be a whole lot more than that uh, when the you know when when all is said and done. Um, but is it really necessary to build, and let's be generous, and we'll say a $600 million manned, uh, manned aircraft uh, to drop uh, you know, pretty expensive munitions deep inside enemy territory when we could, we could create the same effect by launching long-range missiles instead? I think that's a better, I think it's a better calculus. Um, you know, it's, I, I just don't, I, I don't see the overall value in, in a manned bomber at this point when there are so many other options to deliver munitions at a similar distance. What about another forthcoming aircraft, the, uh, the next generation air dominance, the kind of F-22 replacement, alleged sixth generation fighter that seems to be in the pipeline for the Air Force as well. Right. Well, I'm a lot more skeptical about that. Um, you know, just because just for cost purposes alone, uh, you know, you had Frank Kendall, um, the secretary of the Air Force up in front of uh, in front of Congress a couple months ago when he was asked about the NGAD. Uh, you know, he he he. I, I think he was trying to prep the battlefield, really, uh, like bracing members of Congress by saying that, yeah, the, the NGAD is going to cost multiple hundred, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, per copy. Um, that's not a good starting place because, uh, you know, numbers, numbers count. Like the, you know, the F-22 is a really good example of that. If you go back and you look through old government documents at the early Part in, you know, before they really started building F-22s when it was still in the early development phase. You know, the original plan called for like 850 uh, and some of the earliest documents that I found, like 850 F-22s. Uh, and I think when the when the program was awarded to Lockheed Martin, um, I think the number was 750. 
but we ultimately ended up with 187, if I remember correctly, uh, when Secretary Gates canceled the program and in 2009. But the Air Force had steadily reduced the the number of F-22s it was going to buy in the years before that, and and it was all because of cost. Because uh, you know, the the Air Force was trying to stay within the you know, within the the original program budget, and when the when the cost of of each aircraft rose, they could either the Air Force could have either gone back to Congress and asked for more money, um, you know, to complete the program as they originally planned, or they cut the production figures uh, to try to keep the program within that. Uh, and numbers do count. Like it's it's the the service needs equipment and it needs enough equipment to be operationally relevant. And when you build, um, you know, particularly from the very beginning, when you when you when you set out to build a very expensive program, that program becomes vulnerable. Um, like in in future years, in a in a political sense, um, you know, because the decision to you know to curtail the F twenty two program that was a political decision that was made in 2009 because the program was, was vulnerable. You know, at that point we didn't know uh, all the, you know, all the problems that we were going to encounter with the F-35. And, you know, the, the case was made that the F-35 was going to be able to make up any shortfalls in the F-22 program. Well, that didn't happen either. So, uh, so now the air force is in a, is in a big, you know, they have, they have a problem and, you know, the, and I think that the NGAD is going to kind of follow, uh, or it's in danger of following the the F twenty two model, um, where it's you know it, it's easy to be very optimistic at the beginning of a program, um, but even when you're when you start off by saying that you know this is going to cost two hundred three hundred million dollars a copy uh, from the very beginning before um, you know before any real development takes place. Um, you know, from history that those costs are probably going to rise, which is going to make that program very vulnerable uh, to uh, the budgeteers um, and the appropriators uh, on Capitol Hill, uh, you know, in the in the coming years. So we kind of risk falling into that, um, you know, that trap that one of my predecessors called uh, uh, unilateral disarmament, where uh, we allow, um, where we pursue these very expensive programs uh, and then when, when it's discovered, uh, you know, long after that train, that acquisition train has left the station, that the program's unaffordable and those numbers get cut, that we have this like steadily shrinking military force. Uh, and that, that is all a result of, of um, poor decisions that were made at the beginning uh, of these programs. And I, and I fear that the end guide is going to follow that path. One of the things that's been discussed to somewhat offset both the expense of the NGAD and, and of programs like the F-35, uh, potentially like the F-22, is using more numerous, hopefully cheaper drones uh, that would be operating uh, with these aircraft alongside them and kind of expanding the number of relatively capable airframes that you're putting in the air uh, you know, potentially allowing them to do more dangerous missions that maybe you might not want to send a manned pilot into, uh, you know, complicating targeting for an enemy air defense. Uh, what are you thinking about some of these programs? Because they're talking about them being, you know, maybe a third to a quarter of the cost uh, of some of these higher capability crewed aircraft. Uh, and that could be transformative. You know, I just did some back of the envelope math and it's like, hey, if it costs a third for the price of a hundred of the high capability aircraft, you can get 200 total aircraft, 50 high capability and 150 uh, lower capability. Uh, but that kind of rests on the assumption that we keep getting wrong, that this new thing is going to be cheaper and uh, we're going to be able to therefore buy more of it, which as you're saying, keeps not happening. Right. I really like the idea of the loyal wingman program and, and even, you know, even, even at a, I don't know, kind of a lower, uh, you know, certainly less capable, it's kind of a different, uh, well, similar concept, but not exactly the same, you know, the, um, the miniature air launch decoys, uh, that the air force has developed, uh, that, you know, I know it's been, uh, it's been tested on the A-10s and I think the B-1s B have, have used it. Um, 
I think is a is a very good idea because again it goes back to you know it goes back to numbers like you pointed out like very astutely uh, you know numbers do count and you know and, and when you really think about how you know how this works kind of systematically um, you know if you have something like the you know we'll stick with the F twenty two idea right now. Um, so the, the F-22, it, it's, it's an intriguing aircraft, uh, and it is highly capable. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly, certainly far from perfect, but, you know, we only have 180 some of them, um, and the Air Force wants to retire some of them, uh, you know, too, so you have an even smaller fleet. Uh, and, you know, even if, let's say, you know, let's, for argument's sake, say the F-22 does absolutely everything the Air Force promised it would ever do. Uh, but because we only have a small number of them, the situation that 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 results in is, you know, let's say you have a section or you have a you know a flight of two F-22s. So you have two very capable aircraft that are that are up there, um, you know, doing their thing. Well, that's a problem for the enemy. Um, but because you only have two of them, that's kind of a narrow problem and they can focus a lot of attention on just dealing with those, you know, those, those, that one flight of, of F-22s. Uh, that's not all that complicated, uh, you know, to, to do, like there's some technical details involved there, obviously that, that make that a little harder, but it's just one, one big problem that the enemy has to deal with. But if you have, uh, like an effective, um, you know, decoy system, whether it's through like a loyal wingman program or the mold program, then all of a sudden you create a whole bunch of problems for the enemy to deal with. And that's how you overcome the enemy system, which, which, you know, going back even a little bit further, what we were talking about maneuver warfare, that's how you defeat the enemy, like in the maneuver warfare, con- you know, conceptual level, you know, overwhelm the enemy system, you create a problem that the enemy can't deal with effectively and uh, and that's how you collapse that enemy system, and that's how you defeat them without having to, you know, again be that uh, you know be that guy in pads trying to batter your way through the you know through that big brick wall. So you know, on a conceptual level, I really like the loyal wing, wingman program. In execution, however, it remains to be seen how we how how we do this. Um, you know, I would I would recommend. Uh, you know, to anybody who cares to listen, uh, that you want to keep that as simple as possible. Um, you know, because for for that that concept to be realized and to be as effective as possible, uh, you want to be able to build those in as many numbers as you possibly can. Uh, you know, to create that big overwhelming, um, you know, overwhelming force that will create a problem of such a magnitude that the you know, the adversary can't possibly deal with. One of the things I really admire about your work and your writing is that you talk a lot about cost-saving measures falling flat. You know, we've been talking about it today, but your your paper on naval procurement mentioned that the second Ford-class carrier is already 25% more expensive than the first one, um, and you've written a great deal about the cost of the F-35 program. Is there a military-wide structural problem here? And if so, do you see any sort of policy adjustments to to address it? Well, there is definitely a, a larger systemic problem. There's a lot to that. Uh, there's a lot of negative incentives built into the acquisitions process in the United States. Well, let's just let's just stick with one aspect of this. So, the um, the idea of what I I call political engineering, what the Pentagon often refers to as strategic uh, contracting, uh, the idea of spreading subcontracts all over the country. Uh, you know, in, in key congressional districts to, um, you know, to build up like a, like a political constituency for a program. Um, you know, that, that's an effective, you know, that's an effective strategy. You know, you start spreading these contracts around congressional districts and all of a sudden you have, you have a member of Congress who is, who is a vested, you know, a vested political and a lot of times you know, financial interest in these, in these programs, you know, because they're going to get a lot of campaign donations, uh, from them. But what that does, um, you know, that makes a, you know, that, that makes programs more expensive because, you know, to have, uh, enough contracts to spread around, you can, there's, there's a, there's an incentive to add complexity to these, uh, you know, to these things. So, uh, 
I, and I can give you a good specific example. How about the, um, the helmet mounted design for the F-35 program? It's a really good one. So, um, you know, the distributed aperture system with the, the cameras, it's often talked about, about how the, you know, the F-35 pilot can, you know, can look through his aircraft, uh, you know, because of those, you know, because of those cameras. Um, I, you know, sounds like a really good idea, but what's the problem that's really trying to solve? Like the pilot has to have situational awareness outside of his aircraft, right? Like that's the problem that they're trying to solve. Well, we figured that out years ago, um, you know, going... You know, the earliest example that I can think of, um, although there's probably more before it, uh, the F-86 Sabre that was used very effectively in, in Korea. You know, if you look at a picture of that, the pilot sits really high up in the fuselage, this big bubble canopy. So the pilot has a really good view all the way around it. You know, the F-16 was built like that, too. You look how the F-16, you know, how an F-16 pilot sits very high up in that, you know, in that fuselage. Well, in the F-35, the pilot sits down. Uh, pretty low inside the fuselage. And so, you know, looking out, uh, you know, through the canopy, um, it, you know, it doesn't have as good of a view as an F-16 pilot, you know, for example. Um, and so they try to make up for that with the, you know, with the distributed aperture system. And, uh, but the video quality isn't as good as the human eyeball will ever be. And there's even a recording of an F-35 pilot talking about the camera, like, yeah, you know, using the surety aperture system is, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, it's kind of a cool feature, but if I really need to look out of the aircraft or see what's beneath me, I'm just going to roll the aircraft over and I'm going to look, uh, you know, with my own eyeballs, uh, you know, to see, um, and, you know, which is, I'm sure much more effective than the, you know, than the, than the view that he gets in that, you know, in that visor. But what that visor did is it created another, another subcontract that, you know, that can be, that can be spread around. And not only that, but there's also the dedicated contractors because there's a lab in Oregon where a pilot, an F-35 pilot has to go and spend two days to get his helmet, you know, to get their helmets specifically calibrated uh, to their own eyes. It's a two day process and it is only done in one lab in Oregon. And so if a, you know, if an F-35 pilot, uh, you know, drops her helmet, uh, you know, somewhere on an overseas deployment, it's probably not a backup for that, you know, for that helmet. They can do some adjustments in the field, but they can't get it, you know, very, you know, they can't get it finely tuned. And uh, so what happens, what happens to that pilot? Do you take her out of the rotation and like send her back to Oregon to get her, you know, to get her helmet recalibrated and then send her all the way back, uh, you know, to where her squad, you know, squadron's based? No, that's a, that's a big problem. It's useful for the, you know, for, from a contracting standpoint, because, you know, there are F-35 jobs in Oregon specifically just to deal with those helmet adjustments. Um and, but it just added a lot of complexity and they've had, they've had some trouble, you know, with that. We actually lost an F-35. This is, I don't know if you know this, we actually lost an F-35 in Florida back in 2021 in part because of that helmet. So he had a pilot that was trying to land at night in, at Eglin and his, his, uh, you can read this in the, in the investigation report, the, his helmet was not adjusted properly. Like the, you know, wasn't calibrated properly to, uh, you know, to his eyes. And so the the cues that he was getting um, on you know on his heading you know, to land uh, were off, and so he had the you know he was trying to land you know it was it was at night it was very dark you know his his uh, helmet symbology was guiding him off course, and so he's trying to make up for it, and he landed awkwardly on all three wheels at the same time and he lost control well and then there was some some problems with the the software but he lost control of the aircraft and he had to eject from the from the tarmac as the as the f-35 was trying to was trying to he was trying to take back off but he couldn't do it because of the some of the software problems and uh and so he had to eject and the, the aircraft was a total loss and a big part of that was you know this clunky uh helmet system that they that they came up with so um that's a very long tangent that, you know, goes back to, you know, just bigger problems. Some of the, some of the big picture pathologies with the way that we buy weapons in the United States. Uh, Cause there are, there are a lot of negative incentives that, um, you know, to add complexity to weapons programs. And it's important to remember that every time you add a gadget to a weapon system, that's one more thing that can break and one more thing that can keep it on the ground. And that's a big reason why the F-35 is such a low readiness, um, uh, pro you know, 
uh, low readiness rates. Uh, you know, just mission capable aircraft is down around fifty percent. When you're talking about fully mission capable aircraft, uh, you know, in in some cases with some of the variants, you know, it goes down to almost zero. Um, and uh, again, that's that's all attributed to those pathologies that lead to. Uh, very complex weapon systems. So that's why I advocate, you know, cost is is one thing. Uh, it's important for the services not to waste taxpayer money. Um, but more expensive weapon systems tend to be less effective than uh, what came before just because of that excess complexity that goes along with those uh, those added costs. So that's that's the big reason why, why I pick on cost. Like I'm, I advocate for the simplest possible tools to perform its intended mission, uh, because anything beyond that is uh, is a waste, and it's actually probably going to make um, make that weapon system overall less effective than what came before. So we've been talking a lot about weapon systems and the technology and the material that our armed forces uses, but I want to ask just a little bit about doctrine. Um, I'm not super familiar with the with the Marines, but I was talking with my colleague who was telling me all about the Marine Air Ground Task Forces or MAGTAFs, um, which you know are designed. To, op- to offer a, a unique degree of autonomy, centralization for the Marines to play an expeditionary role, not really dependent on external actors. Um, compared to the advent of MAGTAFs in the 1960s and its many predecessors before then, American combat operations, at least from what I understand, seem to often be in cooperation with one partner force or another, especially in the tail end of the 2010s. You know, NATO forces are, were supporting the Iraqi military or uh, uh, necessarily tied to the Afghani security forces. And looming crises now seem tied to alliances or, or relationships with Eastern Europe, East Asia, the Middle East. So, I guess I'm just sort of curious with this with this MAGTAF philosophy, this this appeal for to have a strong expeditionary uh, force. Do you think that MAGTAFs have an element of redundancy? Is that redundancy intentional? And as an advocate for uh, defense policy reform, do you think there is a need for any doctrinal updates for MAGTAFs in the 20, 21st century? Well, there's a lot to unpack in that question. Sorry. Um, no, it's all good. I think so. The the MAGTAF concept, I think, is still very valid, and I would actually like to see it expanded. Um, because the, you know, the, the, the purpose of the Marine Air Ground Task Force was to, was, you're right, it was to, um, you know, for expeditionary purposes, it's very useful to have a force that is cohesive, like a, like a full combined arms force, uh, you know, that integrates, you know, all aspects of, of, uh, the Marine Corps in little, um, you know, kind of ready packaged, um, uh, you know, strike forces, essentially, and, uh, and that, you know, so it's, it's useful operationally, but it was also very useful, uh, from a, like a training standpoint. So, you know, combined arms is the right way to go. And, uh, you know, cause it's, you know, there's no one magic wonder weapon out there. Like you need all arms to work together because some arms, you know, going back to what we talked about with the Israeli tanks in Gaza, um, you know, armor by itself is a very powerful weapon, but um, there are vulnerabilities to those tanks. And so you need that infantry support uh, because the, you know, the infantry, um, you know, covers the weaknesses of, uh, you know, of, of armor, the limitations of armor, uh, while armor uh, greatly enhances or, you know, greatly covers the, the weaknesses of dismounted infantry. Uh, so working together is, is very important. And so having, having the ready package MAGTAFs, um, you know, the Marine Corps traditionally had, uh, you know, last number of decades has been useful mostly from, you know, like a junior officer standpoint. So I went through expeditionary warfare school back in 2011, 2012 timeframe. And where I was told at least a thousand times that I was a MAGTAF officer now, uh, but we, you know, we worked and trained together, like our, our conference group, uh, you know, our class was maybe like 250 people and we were spreading the 16 different conference groups. Well, there were four tank officers in my EWS class, but we weren't all together, like in the same conference group, like they spread us around so that, um, you know, my, my specialization in armor could be matched with the infantry officers that were in my conference group and the logistician that was in my conference group and the artilleryman that was in my conference group. So we learned together, like how we can work together. And then in training, we have opportunities because we are co-located because we are kind of a ready package group. Uh, we train together all the time. And so, um, 
and we did that in peacetime, uh, just in, in the regular course of training, it wasn't a lot of big, you know, I mean, we had some big specialized training exercises, but, um, you know, because we had kind of that common experience, I think that made the overall force more, more effective. And so I'd like to see that expanded, um, and working with partner forces, it's, it, it's a big challenge, um, just because you don't have, you know, all those opportunities to train together. Um, and so if, if moving forward, if that's what, uh, you know, if, if that's what we're going to do, that's what the United States is going to do is going to, uh, you know, if we expect to fight with partner forces, uh, we need to train with them very frequently because trying to patch that stuff together, uh, when, when it's time to, you know, cross the line of departure, once our political, you know, once the political leaders give the go ahead, um, it's too late at that point. So you have to, you know, the MAGTAF concept works, uh, you know, partner forces work when they train together. And, uh, and so I'd like to, that's why I say, like, I'd, I'd love to see the concept expanded, um, you know, like top to bottom. Um, cause that's the, you know, that, that's the, that's the way to make that, that work properly when it really matters. Well, Dan Grazier, thank you so much for coming on Security Dilemma. Patrick, John, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. Security Dilemma is a podcast by the John Quincy Adams Society. To learn more about our programs, visit our website at jqas.org. Remember to rate and review on your podcast app and join us every Tuesday for new episodes.